This week on the show, we have a 35-year-old bug in patch that we're fixing, or has been fixed, a sandbox for FreeBSD, changing from one dataset to another within a jail, you probably don't need Tmux or Screen for ZFS, a hardened BSD status update and call for donations, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 367, Changing Jail Datasets, recorded for the 9th of September 2020. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap, the online backup for truly paranoids. Hit up tarsnap.com and get your backups ready. Hi, I'm your host, Benedikt Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. We welcome you to this week's episode of BSD Now with some interesting headlines from around the BSD space, big and small. And the first one starts with a headline that is a 35-year-old bug in patch. Ah, yes, so Warner Losh uh, with his project of um, reviving or getting back to the old 2.11 BSD. While doing that, he kind of found a bug in the patch utility. But uh, let's not get ahead, so we start from the beginning. Uh, Larry Wall posted a patch 1.3 to mod.sources on May 8th, 18, uh, 1985, writes Warner Losh on his blog. A number of versions followed over the years. It's been faithfully uh, alley for a long, long time. I've never had a problem with patch until I embarked on a 2.11 BSD restoration project uh, that you have uh, a couple of episodes ago completely featured on this episode in an interview. Uh, in going over the logs very carefully, I've discovered a bug that bites this effort twice. It's quite interesting to use 27-year-old patches to find this bug while restoring a 29-year-old operating system. So after some careful research, this turned out to be a fairly obscure bug in an odd edge case caused by the state of email in the 1980s, which can be re uh, relegated to the dustbin of history. Okay, what is this bug? Why has no one else noticed this bug? Well, it only happens when they are processing the last patch hunk in a file, and that patch hunk only deletes lines, and the new style context diff omits the replacement text, since it's implied. Oh, and you also have to uh, be doing a dash capital R patch as well, so a reverse patch. That's pretty obscure, eh? So he found it while following a patch from the 2.11 BSD series, patch 107 in particular. And so um, he provides that patch, which ends like... Yeah, it's just deleting the last two lines of a mm -hmm. file. A defined is gone. And which seems fairly routine in pedestrian, no? However, this hunk runs afoul on a very old bug in the patch code when one tries to reverse apply, capital R, uh, that I got the following output. No such line, 62 an input file, ignoring, hunk is succeeded, and done. Which looks odd. Why is it complaining about a line that isn't there? Why did it misapply the patch uh, six lines earlier? It thinks it succeeded, but really added back the max macro line too early. Hmm, where is the bug? While debugging this, he quickly discovered that inverse patch file looks weird. A uh, patch will generate it for you in the .reg, the reject file, so if the patch couldn't be applied cleanly. Uh, notice the blank lines uh, in the output. They will become important later. They shouldn't be there. The start of the patch should look like, so there's a, a little section that indicates which uh, line and which area in the uh, file should be addressed. Uh, with things snuck together, that's our first clue as to what's going wrong. Since this applies only to reverse patches, we need to make sure that pch underscore swap is doing what it's supposed to be doing. 
It's the thing that touches the internal representation when the capital R flag is given to rewrite the normalized form of the patch. So setting breakpoints uh, at that PCH swap uh, part is producing garbage out because it's getting garbage in for some reason. The three extra blank lines come into this routine for swapping. So it's not a bug in reverse patches, which is good. This bug doesn't, but if it isn't the last hunk in the patch file. So what is inserting those blank lines? Little debugging later lands us on the following uh, code in FreeBSD. Other implementations are similar in the function another underscore hunk in pch.c. Uh, so uh, this is a little hard to follow, but it basically says that p gets returns zero, uh, which does at the end of the file. Then they try to bail out. Then there's a comparison. If p underscore max minus p underscore end is less than four, it will insert a blank line. Otherwise, it will assume the replacement text is missing if we started looking at the replacement and it could be missing. Fairly straightforward. Then he talks a bit about the fix and how to apply that. So apparently, the oldest patch source he could find is patch 1.3, which Larry Wall posted uh, on May 8th, 1985, as mentioned. Two mod sources in the old Usenet hierarchy. And uh, the SCCS... Uh, comments in the file suggests it was started around Christmas the prior year, but can't find any of those versions existent. Okay, so that's where this apparently originated. And there's a lot more details about the bug uh, itself. And so um, the conclusion here is, of course, he committed a fix for FreeBSD, and it should be trivial to adopt for other versions of patch that he has reviewed. And the conclusion is, so a minor glitch he noticed in this reconstruction of 2.11 BSD as released led him to find a bug in patch that's been in the code for 35 years. And been a bug at least 34 of those years. Bug is an extreme edge case that triggers a heuristic for deleted trailing blank lines that in turn causes a problem reversing the patch, but only when the last one at the end of a patch file, and only if it just deletes lines. Still, it's been rare that he's found in fixed bugs in his career that are 35 years old that he thought he'd write this up. And sure, he did, and this is why we're covering it. It's also nuts that he found this using 20-year-old patches. And the addendum reads, On Hacker News, I see that modern GNU patch doesn't suffer from this issue. It would appear that GNU patch has corrected this some time ago, and he was looking at an old version when he thought that it hadn't fixed it. Okay. Yeah, it's like uh, Ingo's mention from previous episode where he was like, oh, I was doing all this documentation in LibreOffice and... Uh, he found a lot of things in the actual source code that were either wrong or wrongly documented. So it also happens in documentation when you do translations and you kind of think, hmm, this string that I'm currently translating is kind of wrong and or either is outdated, so you should fix the original first before doing the translation. Similar things. So yeah, this patch is uh, now patched, I would say. Yep. Uh, so then we have another article here from relcom.sk and says sandbox for freebsd security mechanism for applying additional constraints on running program so what is a sandbox a sandbox is a, is software which artificially limits access to specific resources on the target according to an assigned policy a sandbox installs hooks to the kernel system calls and other subsystems in order to interrupt the events triggered by the application from the application point of view applications work as usual but when it wants to access, for instance, a protected thing like slash dev slash kmem, the sandbox software decides against the assigned sandbox scheme whether or not to allow. In our case, the sandbox is a kernel module which uses 
MAC, the mandatory access control system developed by the trusted BSD team. All necessary hooks were introduced to the FreeBSD kernel. The sandboxing idea is not new. For instance, Apple has developed sandboxing utilities for OS X and iOS in order to protect the system and its integrity. Apple Sandbox is also based on the same Mac framework, but slightly modified. So how does it work? A framework built into the FreeBSD kernel called Mac allows kernel programming interfaces that provide a functionality to interrupt and override the requests sent from user space applications and security labeling of the protected entities. This approach does not require you to modify the system syscall table or any other entries. Upon execution, reaching a Mac procedure, the Mac framework checks if any security extension control functions have been attached to that instance. And if there are, then it will execute those and return the decision to the kernel, which is taken against the loaded policy. Uh, so for example, I created my own little Mac plugin that allows under certain situation, which is if your user ID is like 1050 and you're in a jail, you are allowed to ch own a file that you don't or that you own to a user who you are not. So normally you can't use chown to give your files away because that would allow you to cheat the disk quota system, right? Where you'd be like, oh, this big file I have, that belongs to Benedict. <laughs> I can still read and write it and so on, but I'm gonna chown it to Benedict so it gets charged against his quota instead of mine. And so by <laughs> default, you cannot chown files away to people or to groups you're not a member of. However, for the system I was building where I wanted people to be able to upload uh, videos to our file server, but I wanted those videos to be owned by the customer that did the uploading, I needed this. So I built this uh, little Mac module, it's only a few lines of code, and it basically hooks into this Mac framework, and every time the FreeBSD kernel goes to check the permissions on chown, it runs my little Mac framework, and it's like, oh, if you are the file API user, and you're trying to chown a file, if you're chown it away from yourself, then that's allowed, as long as you're the person that owns the file originally, and that the, you're not changing the file from or to the root user. And so it's a tiny kernel module, and once you load it, it allows you to change the defaults for what is allowed with CHO. And, but the basically every security decision in FreeBSD has one of these plugin points and allows you to basically make up whatever policies you need and load them as part of this framework. And so uh, these developers here have created a sandbox that uses this framework. Oh, very nice. Uh, so they, Development has reached a point where some of the functionality can actually be demonstrated now. In the demo, there are demonstrations of the integrity protection mechanisms, a sandboxing a process, sandbox control, or applying constraints to an executable. And they also provide a link to their GitLab where they have the source code for their modules. Ah, so people can check it out and use it for their own purposes. So the main purpose is to apply additional constraints on the running programs in order to decrease the negative impact on the target system, which can be caused by malicious or vulnerable software. Uh, the sandbox is capable of applying limits uh, separately by UID, including to the root user. At the moment, the sandbox project development has reached the logical end. The current status of the program is a bit raw still, but it is stable. Or, well, stable operation is not guaranteed, but all the features they wanted seem to be implemented. Uh, and so they have some example code here where, you know, they actually decide if you're allowed to open a file or not, or if you're allowed to modify or read certain sysctls and a bunch of different stuff. Mm -hmm. Can I get that as a port or package, or is that self-compile only? Uh, it should be able to be. Uh, that's how I do my custom file API uh, Mac module, 
is ice, just a, an extra port that we add to the ports tree for our servers. But uh, since the source code is here, it's possible for you to go and look at it and, and play with it a bit, and it looks relatively interesting. I might provide a bunch of interesting examples of what you can do with the Mac framework. There are some built-in Mac modules that are part of FreeBSD as well. I think one of the popular ones is called Port ACL, which allows you to do things like say, hey, this user, even though they're not root, is allowed to listen on port 80, whereas normally only the root user is allowed to open ports below 1024. Mm. Another one that comes to mind is, is see other UIDs, so you can only display the ones in top that are owned that's by you. just a sysctl. That's not actually Isn't it a module? Right. Okay. thought it was. But um, one of the ones that's used by default now is there's one that allows the NTP user to change the clock without having to be root. Ah, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mac NTPD. And that's one of the ones that's used by default now. Okay, very nice. So yeah, and people might get into Mac development and uh, start writing their own modules because the framework is there. And Yeah, there's a bunch of examples in the, the Mac parts of the handbook. And in general, it's pretty simple. It's, you know, you decide at what decision point in the kernel is refusing you something you want to allow or allowing something you want to refuse. Uh, and then you basically get to add your own if statements to it and be like, if it's this user trying to do it, then it's allowed. Or if it's not this user trying to do it, then it's not allowed or whatever. In my case, it was, if we're in a jail and the user doing it is the user ID provided by the sysctl, then we know that's our special API user and they are allowed to do this and nobody else is. And we can still add our own safety belt saying, you know, while they can CHO own files away to anybody, they can't CHO own files owned by root because that seems like that would be mm -hmm. bad. Yeah, this won't go well soon or for long. <laughs> okay, so definitely a good uh, way to get involved into well, kernel development more like. So next up, we have an article here from uh, Dan Langill's blog about changing from one data set to another within a FreeBSD jail. And he says, ZFS has the ability to share itself within a jail. And given the jail some autonomy, and I like that. I've briefly written about it before, uh, specifically using it with IOCage. More recently, I started using a ZFS snapshot for cache clearing. In particular, um, he had a cache directory he wanted to clear out, and deleting all the files was taking a little while, and he was having trouble getting it just right so it didn't accidentally delete something else or whatever. And I suggested, if you just take a ZFS snapshot of a directory while it's empty, you can always do a ZFS rollback to that empty snapshot. All the files will disappear, and it it's basically an instant operation. Yeah. Uh, and so we switched to using mm -hmm. that. Uh, but the purpose of this post is to document the existing configuration of the production uh, Freshports web servers and outline the plan on how to modify it uh, for a more ZFS snapshot-based cache-clearing-friendly configuration. So currently, he has his main tank pool with a data subdirectory, and then there's Freshports dataset, and then it has a backend, and then there's one called cache and one called cache slash packages, which is the one I think he needs to clear. Uh, looking at these mount point, it confused me, but looking more closely, I see that most of them are actually not mounted. Only the cache slash packages is actually mounted, and this put me at ease. The iocage slash jails mount point is a leftover from before the dataset was jailed, and the rest of them are relative to the root of the jail. Mm. So on the host, let's look at the file systems from just one level up. And we see all the backend data sets under cache in his pool. This is shared between the backend, a jail called Ingress01, and the front end, a jail called Nginx01. I need to split these apart from the front end and the backend. So, looking at what he does for some other related places, 
For the dev test and stage jails, at least on this one host, I have a split environment. From there, I split this into the ingress jail and the website jail. For production, I want something similar to what I have in staging, where I basically have separate data sets. The package file system was discussed in another post about clearing the caches, but since then I've extended that to include the ports subdirector as well, because occasionally ports is cleared out completely, but not as frequently. A typical usage is, for example, a recent change in the way we do the caching. Uh, when I went back to the production host, I discovered some more data sets that were there. And you notice, ah, all that is not actually a jailed data set. All those data sets are mounted as file systems on the host into the some subdirectory of the ch root of the jail, not actually jailed where the file systems get mounted inside the jail relative to the jail root. I see. Uh, and he walks through how he switches that around. Yeah, so you can follow along and uh, can compare if you uh, have the same problem uh, if your output is similar. Yeah, even more flexibility. Yes. Uh, so in particular, I highly recommend Dan's approach there of when you want to change something, especially for production systems and so on, document the state of where it is now before you touch it, plan out what you're going to do, and then keep track of each thing you did and what the result was. Because it means if you do run into problems and you ask someone for help, they can actually see what happened and and where things were at each stage, and it makes it much easier to provide assistance. Plus, you can then post them, and that becomes learning material for other people, or even just a handy reference to yourself when you're trying to do this operation again in two or three years. Or in particular, I think, uh, the server Dan's talking about there recently suffered a hardware failure, and he needs to rebuild that server. Well, now he has all this detailed documentation on what was where and how things were laid out. Uh, I'm sure it will make his life a lot easier. So be good, be like Dan. Then we have an article about you don't need Tmux or Screen for ZFS. That's from, uh, ah, yes, Ruben Schade has been blogging again. And uh, the blog post goes like this. Back in January, I mentioned how to add redundancy to a ZFS pool by adding a mirror drive. That's a link to a separate post. Uh, someone with a private account on Twitter asked me why FreeBSD and NetBSD doesn't ship with a Tmux or Screen equivalent in base in order to, to demonize the process and let them run in the background. ZFS already does this for its internal commands. For example, I used ZFS add to add a drive to fix an older RAID Z2 pool. So I can just uh, run zpool status. And under status, you see the status line, one or more devices is currently being resilvered, and the status of that. Uh, the pool will also continue to be available, though potentially with reduced I.O. performance while it replicates, or re-replicates even. Yes, I, I'm, I'm assuming he meant zpool attach or replace or something, because zfs add isn't a valid command. Yeah. Uh, but in particular, you don't want to use zpool add on a system that has RAID Z2, because it will add a new drive as a stripe not actually repair your RAID Z. Yeah, don't make it worse, yeah. But yeah. Use the N parameter. It's telling you what it's supposed to do without actually doing it. Uh, but going back, um, the only time I use Tmux is during a large ZFS send and receive operation between machines over SSH. At that stage, we've introduced networks into the mix, which even the most robust, trustworthy storage system in the world can't guarantee will stay up. Yeah, so Tmux is nice uh, and screen as well. Yes, uh, the main reason why they're not included by default is the license. Ah, yes, that's another thing. But I'm it's... pretty sure both of those are GPL licensed. Right, yeah. But they're just uh, package installed away and uh, 
fairly easy to compile even. So yeah, uh, definitely a good mention. And uh, for people who are still uh, new in this NFS space, you don't need all the extra tooling around it. It brings most of the things with it. Then we have a uh, status update or status report from HardenBSD from August 2020 and call for donations. So the HardenBSD website writes, or the uh, blog post by Sean Webb here in particular, this last month has largely been a quiet one. Uh, he has restarted work on porting five-year-old work from the code pointer integrity, CPI, into HardenBSD. Chiefly, he has started forward porting the libc and RTLD bits from the CPI project and now needs to look at LLVM compiler linker enhancements. We need to be able to apply the safe stack to shared objects, not just application binaries. This forward porting work I'm doing is to support that effort. The infrastructure has settled and is now churning normally and happily. We're still working out bandwidth issues and hope to have a new fiber line ran by the end of September. So as part of the status report, I'm issuing a formal call for donations. Uh, Sean Webb is aiming for 4 million US dollars. Is that 4 million? Wait. Is that 4 million or 4K? 4,000, 4, right? So 4K. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> in, in everywhere in the world except for France, the comma is the thousand separator and the period is the decimal point. Well, in Germany, you also, ah, well, it doesn't matter. If you have 4 million available for Harden BSD, then they probably will also take it. So no, it's 4,000 4, US dollar. Okay. So he's aiming for 4,000 US dollar for a newer self-hosted Gitty server. Uh, I hope to purchase the new server before the end of 2020. Last year, I migrated us away from GitHub as the source of truth for Harden BSC source code and port street. The server hosting the source is a rather ancient one, a 10-year-old Dell R410 with insufficient CPU and RAM. I formally calling for donations to go towards a newer server to host our code. Yeah, I think 4K should be fine for that. <laughs> I wanted to self-host our source for a couple reasons. First, a single source of truth under our control that we can monitor and guarantee the security of. Second, provide unique access to the Harden BSD ecosystem. We provide to Tor onion services for those who need it and plan to deploy other mixnets, anonymization services and privacy-related tech for reaching HardenBSD's infrastructure in unique ways. We use Git as our uh, code sharing platform. It has a similar look and feel to GitHub and provides bug reports, wiki, and pull request features. Given that HardenBSD is a downstream from FreeBSD, which shares a history greater than 25 years, this places a huge burden on Git I'm having a hard time on our hand me down Dell R40, uh, 14, Dell 4. One zero, let's say, <laughs> and definitely desperately need an upgrade. So yeah, that's an old system. We appreciate every type of contribution, whether it be financial, code, documentation, advocacy, or otherwise. HardenBSD would not exist without the continued help and support from the community. And next up, we have an article from our friend Chris Seidman over at the University of Toronto, and it's about the important parts of Unix history happened before readline support was common. Mm -hmm. Unix and things that run on Unix have been around for a long time now. In particular, GNU readline was first released in 1989 as part uh, related to Bash, which is long enough ago for it to, or for it or its lookalikes, to become pretty much pervasive, especially in Unix shells. Today, it's easy to think of readline support as something that's always been there. But of course, that isn't the case. Unix in its modern form dates from B7 in 1979 or 4.2 BSD in 1983. So a lot of Unix was developed before readline and was to some degree shaped by the lack of. That's not to say that GNU readline and bash were the first sources of readline style editing or command completion and so on. On Unix, they go back to at least 1983 with TCSH, but TCSH wasn't pervasive 
for various reasons. Uh, so I guess I should have mentioned this at the beginning, but readline is basically the library that provides the ability to do things like the arrow keys and edit the commands on your shell. So when you're doing the tab completion, but also just being able to press up and go through the history and be able to edit the line in place instead of just having to erase it and so on. Uh, all that kind of functionality is uh, in a library called readline. The things we take for granted, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it says, one obvious thing that was shaped by the lack of readline was CSH or C shell. Uh, C shell was sophisticated set of operations on your command history that were involved through special strings embedded in your command line. To quote the 4.2 BSD CSH man page, history substitutions place words from previous command input as portions of new commands, making it easy to repeat commands, repeat arguments of a previous command in the current command, or fix spelling mistakes in the previous command with little typing and a high degree of confidence. History substitution begin with the character exclamation mark and may begin anywhere in the input stream with the proviso that they do not nest. The most common, well-known history substitution for TCSH users is probably two exclamation marks, which repeats the previous command. Bash has a similar functionality called CF, apparently. And even today, the Bash manual calls out its similarity to CSH's bang bang option. These days, I suspect most people use Bash, don't use Bash history substitution, and just stick to the readline stuff. It's generally more fluid and easy to deal with. This is an, an obvious observation, but at times it's easy to blur the old days of Unix together and lose track of how comparatively old some parts of it are, or at least it is for me. Uh, and as a postscript, he has, my impression is that the widespread availability of command and file name completion subtly shapes the kind of command names and file names that people use. When you don't have completion, it takes a lot of sense to name uh, for file names to be short, and it doesn't matter if they're all jumbled together so that the completion doesn't tell them apart. Famously, Unix loves short command names because they're short to type, which makes a lot of sense in a v7 type environment. Yes, I've I've gone so far as to change just change my mind about how, what to name a file because it messed with the tab complete order in the directory it ended up in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it it you you get kind of reliant on these things. Yes, or like I think the directory in bind for where I put my the primary zone files I think changed from one name to another because it made it unique enough that I only had to type the first letter and press tab instead of having to be more specific oh that's such a time saver sometimes just hitting tab and you get the full file name yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, random comment on the blog here says I didn't know that the T in TCSH actually stands for 10x line editing for some reason I had thought it was CSH that had been advertised as a line editing shell. I hadn't even had a chance to use 10x, but it seems to be rather influential in that regard. I remember seeing it mentioned in the Kermit docs for the same reason. History substitution history substitutions interact very poorly with Bash's quoting and escaping mechanisms to the point that I disable the functions entirely so I could use exclamation mark in commands without fear, having really missed it and not really missed it much. Most of my needs are indeed served by readline uh, or even things like alt plus uh, shortcuts instead of exclamation mark dollar sign. Admittedly, there are some situations where caret foo, caret bar would be much faster than control arrowing all the way back. But if the command gets so long, then it's usually it's time to turn it into a shell script anyway. Yeah, at one point you make your life easier this way.
Uh, speaking of files, have you done recently backups? Hopefully you did. And most people did that with a tool they already know using tar. And to just top it off, why don't you use tarsnap? Because it's the familiar tar environment, but with the added security of making proper backups in the secure way. So tarsnap is a service that you can use to provide online backups for yourself. So what you do is you generate a key that never leaves your machine. All the files that you want to back up are encrypted using that key. And then the encrypted files go out in the internet, in this case, AWS storage. And there it rests until they are needed again, because you need to do the restore. And while they're there, no one can read them because they're just mumbo jumbo. No one can understand because it's encrypted. And as long as you keep the key locally, then pretty much no one else but you can get the actual readable files with the real content in them back. So Tarsnap is the service that gives you all this functionality. It provides the encryption, the decryption, the uploading, the downloading, and to a very small fee, you can get started using Tarsnap today. There are plenty of clients available for all the Unix systems, Windows, uh, Mac OS, and you can even compile your own client if you need to. Uh, documentation is available as well as a book, Tarsnap Mastery from Michael W. Lucas. And that pretty much gives you the reason to actually first make up backups in the first place or continue making your backups using a secure way. So check out tarsnap.com and start making backups in the secure way. All right, we've reached the feedback and questions section this week, and it's a nice section for people who just want to get our general opinion about things or just, hey, can you help me out with something? Sure, and we try to help you with that. But to give you help, we actually need questions. And those questions or anything about the show, any comments or stories that you have for a future episode maybe, should be all sent to feedback at bsdnow.tv. And that way, this section is always filled with nice questions and comments. So the first one is Mason this week with a mail server uh, question, I think. So Mason writes, I forget if there's another address for questions now, but this appears to be the last one I used. Yes, you reached us. So I'm migrating a mail server to a FreeBSD jail, and I've been conflicting notes about how best to tune ZFS for holding accounts with mail dears. My current thinking is that I don't want to change record size as it's an upper limit, but not a minimum. Uh, but I might want to set primary cache equals metadata, so I'm caching information about MailDir contents, but not the MailDir contents themselves. Are these valid thoughts, and what else is there to think about? Problem is that I don't know what I'm, what I don't know, and I'm not sure about what I do know. So I'd love some advice about how to best tune a dataset for MailDirs. Uh, so ZFS should be fine out of the box, and you don't need to do any tuning. There's possibly some advantage to doing that primary cache metadata thing. But in general, ZFS is smarter about what it's caching and the defaults will be fine. In particular, while doing primary cache metadata will mean it only caches you know, the list of file names in the directory and the metadata and not the actual mails, it may be better to actually be caching that. For example, when a new mail comes in and gets written into the mailder, chances are pretty high that very soon a client is going to come along and want to read that email. Right? The dubcot's going to see, hey, that email's there now, and somebody's got an IMAP connection or makes a pop connection and would like to download the email. If you happen to have that in your ARC, it means you can send it to them without having to touch the disk again, and you'll get more performance that way. The other thing is, if, for example, you're using something like dubcot, it keeps a uh, small database of the mails in uh, that directory, and it may be worth that 
staying warm in your cache uh, as a frequently used file. Um, whereas if you set primary cache equals metadata for that whole directory, then those DevCot databases will not get cached and that might hurt performance. So no tuning is required. Only thing I really suggest is you probably want to turn compression on, which is not the default. So the biggest thing I would do is just turning LZ4 compression on, on the Maildir directory, since uh, you will get good compression on mail because it's full of text. And that, you know, even when people have binary attachments, they're actually base64 encoded. So that still turns into text. It means you can still get some compression on it because there was inflation, right? If, if you send a, a one megabyte zip file by an email, it actually gets expanded to like 1.3 megabytes or so. Uh, and then LZ4 maybe can compress that back to about a megabyte or whatever. Anyway, lots of savings to be had from compression there. I wouldn't worry about changing any of the other settings though. Out of the box, ZFS is fine. Yeah, in, in particular, the ARC is going to cache the files you use most recently and most frequently, and that's probably what you want, right? You want the recent emails to stay in the cache because then you can, when clients come to read them, they can uh, not waste IOPS off your disks to load that. And then as the mail's not recent, it will fall out. But if there are things like the BAM Bayesian filters or memory for that, or the index that DevCot uses for IMAP and that kind of thing, those that are frequently used will stay in the cache and avoid slowing down your mail server. You can change the settings if you want, but in general, the only one you really probably care about is turning compression on. Yeah, exactly. So hopefully that helped you and good luck with your mail server setup. Using ZFS is definitely a good option. Uh, next is Casey with uh, FreeBSD on the decline comment. I would say. Uh, Casey writes, all thanks. Uh, uh, thank you always for the awesome show. Thank you. I really do appreciate hearing about all the BSD news. I'm starting to worry that FreeBSD may be on the decline. Below is a list of reasons why. So the announcement from IX Systems that they will be developing a version of TrueNAS on Linux, uh, which is possibly a first step to continuing the FreeBSD version. Uh, the announcement... Uh, so I'll respond to these one at a time, I guess. Yeah. They just finished a giant effort to get the latest OpenZFS code into FreeBSD. So I don't think their plan would be to abandon FreeBSD that soon, if at all. The main reason for a version of TrueNAS that runs Linux is they needed a version that could do Dockery things. Right. Uh, the announcement of TrueOS being discontinued, that plays into that a little bit. Well, that was uh, a while ago now, but there are plenty of other desktop-based OSs, including what, uh, Nomad BSD, uh, Ghost BSD, and what's the other big one? Joe, who used to work on TrueOS, does uh, it? Yeah. Fury BSD. Fury BSD, of course. And so on. Mostly TrueOS is basically the version of FreeBSD that powers FreeBSD versions of TrueNAS. And they stopped focusing on a desktop OS because IAX decided to focus their development on TrueNAS rather than making a desktop. That was a commercial decision, you know, deciding that desktops aren't where you're going to make money, which makes sense. Uh, Project Trident is basically the same thing. It was some of the people doing TrueOS spun off Trident as a an open source effort rather than or a community effort rather than being sponsored by X systems. And those that remain decided they want to do something different with it. Again, if you're making a desktop, that's maybe different. And then lastly, your question about uh, ZFS and Linux becoming the upstream for ZFS in general. It's more that OpenZFS is now a project that includes Linux and FreeBSD. Not that much new development in ZFS happened to FreeBSD before. In fact, I would say now there are more lines of code from FreeBSD in ZFS than there were before. And like, for example, the first feature flag that actually came from FreeBSD has landed in OpenZFS, the Zsander compression. So I would say that FreeBSD has actually increased its, its efforts in ZFS 
rather than declined. Yeah, and I think you mostly looked at mainstream news. And uh, what I would recommend is you look at the, the source tree and like uh, source head, for example, and then look at the sponsored byline. There's plenty of companies that are not that visible in the like mainstream media or the IT media, but they're still contributing. So I'm not seeing any kind of decline in FreeBSD usage yeah, from there, these. Yeah, the TrueOS stuff and the Trident stuff is mostly around the desktop, but there are other efforts there. Like we said, Nomad, BSD, Fury, BSD, Ghost, BSD, and so on. Yeah, there's the server space. There's the yeah. the embedded space is currently going very, very active. I see these uh, commits running by without yeah, being I able think to chase all them. One sign that's definitely looking up is if you look at the new Armorello platform, this new uh, processor designed with security in mind, where FreeBSD is going to be the first operating system for it. Yeah. Basically, the processor was designed to run the Cherry version of FreeBSD. Right. And it all comes down to if people like you are donating money to the foundation or any kind of uh, BSD foundation, uh, that's definitely appreciated. And if you evangelize and use the system, that is, for me, the best evidence that people are still using it and that it's still relevant for people, that it's solving their IT and operating system needs in a day-to-day -day thing. What better way to say, hey, this project is very much alive. And I'm not seeing that it's going to be on a decline. It might be not. And this has been uh, like kind of a problem for BSD or the free BSDs for a while. They're not too good in the marketing space. It got better, uh, but we're not like there's something going on in the mainstream news about FreeBSD every week or so. That That is definitely not happening. But so that might give you the impression that we're kind of on the decline, but BSDs are out there and they have been for a long time and they're just the, the quiet uh, operating system next to the other big ones who are much louder. But definitely, uh, thanks for sharing your thoughts and uh, thanks again for all your advocacy work and using FreeBSD and OpenBSD as well. So that's definitely appreciated. Uh, then we have Dennis about uh, a Postgres question. Dennis writes, Hi, Alan and Benedict. Thank you for running the show. Oh, yes. Uh, we've been doing this for quite a while now. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a question and a bit of feedback. Sure, let us uh, listen to, or hear to that. Uh, being a long-time Linux user, I recently gained interest in FreeBSD. Okay. Mostly because I like how thoroughly it is documented. That and the fact that only time when I needed to restart my PFSense-based router was when it was due for update, which leads me to believe that FreeBSD is a very stable system. Yeah, you might be onto something there. Uh, I think I decided to give it a try and run a small side project of mine on FreeBSD. What I'm not sure about is how Postgres will like to be in a jail. I think I heard somewhere that jails were not super friendly for databases. Could you provide your perspective on that? So... It will work very well in a jail. In the past, in FreeBSD 10 and earlier, I think, uh, if you were trying to run multiple Postgres's on the same machine in different jails, uh, the problem was that the shared memory segments were not isolated between the jails. But in newer FreeBSD, they are, and so there's no extra work. In the past, you had to basically purposely run the different Postgres's on different ports or as different users or something to avoid them conflicting, but now, nothing to do just run multiple jails run multiple versions of postgres and it all works great postgres in a jail is a very common workload and works very well on freebsd yeah so definitely uh jail all the databases you have yeah my favorite reason to do that is it makes it really easy to pick up that database and move it to a different hardware you know it's like i need to do maintenance on the server i can snapshot the data set that has the jail 
replicate it to the other machine, then do an incremental replication to catch up on, you know, because the first one might have taken an hour or something, depending on how much data there is in the database. Then I can stop the database, one more snapshot, quick replication, and now stand that database up on the new server. And now my database was down for tens of seconds, maybe, and is now running on another server. And now I can do the maintenance on uh, the server that used to host it without interrupting the database. Yep. That's uh, one good benefit. Yeah, not the only one, but more than uh, one is definitely mm -hmm. there. So he has a feedback for us. So well, um, um, can you finish the rest of the question? Oh, sure. Um, the reason I think about jails is reproducibility and isolation. And yes, I'm going to use ZFS, and I'm wondering if I could use ZFS snapshots as a way to back up the database. So you can. There's some best practices there. Uh, I don't have it off the top of my head, but I'm sure it's on Dan Langill's blog somewhere. There's a command you can do in Postgres to say, you know, flesh everything out and hold all the transactions. So basically you would do this Postgres command to sync the database to the disk and stop anything else from happening. Take the snapshot, which will take, you know, 0.1 seconds or whatever. And then you run the second Postgres command to resume. And it means that way you have a snapshot as if Postgres was shut down gracefully instead of as if it crashed. Mm. You know, you can create just a regular snapshot and Postgres can resume as if it had just crashed. It's just Always slightly nicer to have a, a clean one instead of a dirty one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Dan should have that in his blog and many of his postings. He did them at yeah. least because uh, he does it. His I think he does that and then has Bacula take a backup of it from the snapshot or something. I don't know the details, mm. but yes. And uh, there's a similar thing for doing it with the MySQL or MariaDB or whatever as well. Yeah. So to run an external command and then let the database resume. Okay, so that's all for the question. Uh, as for the feedback, more than once I heard you mentioning GCC in a negative context. While I do understand why it's being or has been removed from the base system, I'm not sure I understand why you are referring to it as if it is something filthy. Oh, uh, back when I started my career in early 2000, GCC was superior to any available commercial offering. Being able to use it was like a breath of fresh air. It was the most modern and sophisticated C compiler with a bunch of really cool features. I'd say even more, if not for GCC, we wouldn't have had open source now, BSD included. So yeah, but Clang seems to be a better architected and engineered product, and it gained feature parity with GCC and has a permissive license. I believe it stands where it's only because it's standing on the shoulders of the GCC uh, giant. Yeah, I don't disagree necessarily. Uh, I imagine most of the negative feelings come from having a version of GCC from, I think it was 2006, is it? Very old, yeah. Yeah very old version of GCC that just constantly causes problems. And it was mostly to do with the licensing problem. You, know, you can still use modern GCC on FreeBSD. Uh, we talked about it in the Spark 64 episode last week. There's a cross tool chain thing. And, you know, there's even uh, CI setups where we purposely compile modern FreeBSD using GCC 9 and 10 and so on in order to make sure that it still works and to see what differences there are. Because sometimes GCC might actually provide code that performs better or there's some interesting cases where the same code will result in different execution. Somebody won a contest recently with the shortest program that shows undefined behavior, where it's basically main and it returns x plus one plus x plus two or something, or sorry, x equals one plus x equals two, and it returns that, and Clang returns three and GCC returns four. Ah, <laughs> whoops. Just because the order of the the code is interpreted in and so on. So yes, don't mean to be negative about GCC. It was just the project was very grateful to get rid of the ancient version of GCC that was requiring a bunch of weird patches all the time. Every time you'd 
you know, try to bring in some new code from somewhere or write some new code, that worked perfectly fine with Clang and modern GCC, but this old version of GCC would start complaining about it and it was a pain. Yeah, that might give you the impression that we're kind of uh, on the bad side with GCC, but I guess this will fade away as more code is uh, being used on the Clang yeah, side. Yeah, like I don't actually know when the BSDs switch from their whatever C, I think they had ACC or something, some other compiler that they had in the beginning to GCC. That was long before my time. And so, you know, up until uh, FreeBSD 10, any compiler that wasn't GCC was a weird thing. Uh, and I remember hearing talks at HBSDCon about different things, like different linkers as well, like Gold, one of them was called, and something else. And, you know, this talk about Clang, and I was like, well, GCC is working fine. But I'm very glad that we switched to Clang because using GCC from 2006 nowadays has been very problematic. Yeah. All right. Uh, that hopefully answers your question. And uh, yeah, good luck with your future uh, BSD endeavors. If you have further questions, then let us know. And that pretty much wraps up this episode of BSD Now. Thank you for listening. Uh, leave us a like on Twitter if we uh, post a new episode there, or you can watch us now on twitch.tv slash bsdnow uh, when we're doing this thing live. And otherwise, yes, I think the, the big thing with Twitch is that you can get a notification automatically when we start recording. Ah, so you never miss a beat uh, when we are doing the show. Excellent. And yeah, definitely be uh, excited for next week's episode of BSD Now. Mm -hmm.